In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS fellow John Gaventa interviews Fiona Anciano and Joanna Wheeler, who edited the book Political Values and Narratives of Resistance, Social Justice and the Fractured Promises of Post-Colonial States. The book brings together multidisciplinary perspectives to explore how political values and acts of resistance impact the delivery of social justice in post-colonial states such as South Africa and Zimbabwe. Examining important themes in political science, anthropology, sociology and urban geography, this book will appeal to scholars and students interested in political values, justice, social movements and resistance. Greetings, my name is John Gaventa. I'm a professor and fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. Our guests today are Fiona Anciano and Joanna Wheeler, who have edited a wonderful new book entitled Political Values and Narratives of, Res of Resistance, Social Justice and the Fractured Promises of Post-Colonial States. Dr. Fiona Anciano is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. And Dr. Jonah Wheeler is founder and director of Transformative Story and a senior research fellow in the politics department at the University of Western Cape as well. Joanna is also a former IDS fellow and we welcome her back on this podcast. Across 10 compelling case studies in four post-colonial states, Brazil, India, South Africa, and Zimbabwe, this book provides a rich tapestry of why and how often marginalized groups protest and resist across a range of issues, be they around water and land, health and housing, livelihoods and legal processes, even foreign policy and global development issues. Fiona, maybe you could start and just tell us a little bit more about the core, what this book is about and the core argument that you are making. Thanks, John, and thanks to IDS for having us on your podcast. It's great to be talking to you. Um, yeah, so this is an edited book, and uh, there are actually 12 authors involved in the book. And it really does bring together a multidisciplinary perspective, because almost you know, every author has got a different um, perspective in terms of their background of what they've researched, from legal scholars to anthropologists. Uh, the book explores, in essence, political values, how political values are formed, it then looks as acts of resistance, uh, which we might frame as protest, and the impact in the delivery of social justice in post-colonial post states. So the book specifically focuses on the relationship between the state and groups that have been historically oppressed because they've been on the margins of the political, economic, and social system. So we know from the research we do and, and the worlds we live in that everyday life in post-colonial states is characterized by injustices and that these have both historical and contemporary um, features to them. So we have multiple case studies from post-colonial states. And as you've mentioned, uh, these are four countries, Brazil, India, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. So case studies will look, for example, at fishers in Cape Town who are accused of poaching. It'll look at residents in Bulawayo who demand access to water, the landless um, Adivasi in India, and the chapters then, using these case studies as empirical material, explore questions such as what do citizens, and especially those from marginalized groups, actually want from the state? What are the political values that these citizens hold? How do we surface them? And how are they formed in the process of engaging with the state and through everyday injustices? 
So I'm just going to just briefly um, clarify a bit about what we mean by the term political values, because when Joe and I started editing this book and writing the introduction, you can't just Google up political values and hope you're going to get a nice definition. <laughs> it's quite hard to actually um, to, to conceptualize that. So we've drawn on the ideas such as Nomos um, by, by Kova, who's a, a legal scholar. And this is the idea of a normative universe where social and political behavior is actually socially constructed and that this reflects what society considers just. So in that sense, we've got a legal perspective, but we've also drawn on the concept of moral economy where the idea of a legitimizing notion frames what citizens feel as moral or fair to expect from the states. And this reflects what they value both socially and politically. So these concepts help surface what political values individuals and groups in our case studies see as just or as right or as moral. And then we show how political values evolve with time and with place and in relation to different socially constructed identities, including those we, we've come to study um, in contemporary society, such as race, gender, class, caste, religion, age, ability, sexuality, etc. And so as a result of these complexities, the volume does show the political values are not fixed and may not be legible actually through the democratic system. So building on the understanding of political values, the book then also asks why and how in particular citizens actually resist the state. So once we understand citizens' political values, um, what do they do with the political values? What examples of protests can we see? And what are actually less visible forms of resistance? And how do these reflect complex histories and power relations? And then finally, and Joe will talk more to this, it's her expertise, but the book explores how narratives and counter narratives reveal the nature of political values and perceptions of what is just. And this is because if you wanna make political values more legible, you actually have to explore narratives as a means of surfacing and articulating political values. So taken together, uh, the elements then show the evolution of a post-colonial social contract. And we, we, many of the chapters and in the introduction, we conclude by thinking about what is the trajectory of the post-colonial social contract. Great, thanks Fiona, that's a, that's a wonderful summary. In my own reading of the book, um, I thought this concept of political values was so important because like you say, we don't really understand much about values and how they are shaped and how values link for action to action. We have a lot of generic sort of surveys of political values, but your work really goes deep and applies it to case studies. But Joanna, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what do you see as the gap that this book is filling? And, and how did you bring the group together? You have a very interesting set of authors, uh, I think from these countries, uh, Southern authors. Um, what was the process of bringing this book together and what gap were you hoping to fill? Um. I think that's a good question. So I guess, um, and it's sort of, the answer kind of links the two parts of your question together because the gap and I think the particular group of authors and how we came together are, are related. So um, this book, like many edited books, was it was a long journey. Um, and this one was, was longer than, than some. Um, and uh, many of the researchers that were involved in, in this volume, um, previously worked together as part of the um, Development Research Center on Citizenship, Participation and Accountability, which was based um, at IDS and led by you, John. Um, and, and when it came to a conclusion, uh, a number of the researchers involved, um, continu we've continued working together on questions of democracy, participation and, and citizenship. 
Um, we've had a number of um, workshops and meetings and research um, uh, agendas that we've been developing collectively um, over the past 10 years. And um, through this, we, we, became, we became interested in questions of moral economy actually initially. And we were fortunate enough to have a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to meet in Bellagio, Italy. Um, I think it was in 2017. Is that right, Fiona? Yeah, I think it was 2017 when we were there. And um, for a lot of the scholars involved in this book who are also um, mainly based in the global south and many of them also work, see their work, you know, in part of their work as being about activism and, and, and supporting democracy. Um, I think there were a lot of questions about for, for us from, from, from our experience and from, from, from our research of um, how democratic systems were really going to be able to keep up with what, with what was happening in, in the world around them. Um, and so when, when we came together in Bellagio in 2017, we, we started talking about moral economy and that led to another workshop that was um, very kindly supported um, by the South African um, Research Council, uh, Social Science Research Council, um, which, which looked again at this, at this question of, of, of moral economy um, and, and democracy. And, and so it was through these, these two um, workshops over a number of years that, we, that this volume emerged. And so it, it was multidisciplinary, but it was also based on quite a long period of time of um, discussing the ideas and getting and knowing each other's work and understanding where different disciplinary perspectives come in. And um, we were also very lucky to bring in a number of new and emerging scholars from the Global South um, to the workshops who, who have then also contributed to the book. And I think that's really important that um, the book was not only trying to meet a gap in terms of the literature, but it was also about uh, modeling a way of working that is um, more inclusive and more open. Um, so when, when we came together in, in South Africa for, for the second workshop, um, there was a lot going on. Obviously COVID hadn't happened yet, but there were, there were other things happening. There, were, there was rising populism in Brazil. We had Bolsonaro coming into power on, um, you know, on the back of many, many years of, of, of a much more progressive government in Brazil. We had um, the, the very <laughs> complex situation in South Africa with the end of Zuma's time in power and the questions about the legitimacy of the ANC, um, the African National Congress in South Africa. Um, in Zimbabwe, uh, Mugabe's reign had ended, but you know, it wasn't clear what that was going to lead to. And of course, in India, we had um, you know, Hindu nationalism uh, on the rise, and not just in those countries, but in many other countries, including the United States and the UK, many countries in Europe and other places around the world. So th this, this sort of rise of populism, um, the, the, the visibility, the new visibility or new recognition that was being given to racism and colonialism in scholarship and in politics, and a sense of really people in a lot of the countries that we were working in are really fed up with waiting for social justice to arrive. Um, and so I guess as a group, we were interested in what are the political consequences of this for democracy? And 
as you know, much of the literature focuses on procedural and representative aspects of democracy and, and the formal participatory processes, which, which are very important and, and do need to be studied. But having been part of some of that research ourselves, we were keen to go further beyond that. And we wanted to know what, what do the values that underpin the equation between citizens and the state mean? Um, in, in terms of people's lives and what do they mean politically. Um, so I think that what this book does is it recognizes the idea of multiplicity in governance, that there are multiple interwoven forms of governance at work. And there is also uh, an important diversity to consider across groups of citizens. And this book is trying to take our attention to the margins, to those who are living with oppression and exclusion and ask, um, what does, what does all of this tell us about the prospects for democracy? Excellent, very, very interesting. And, and what I, you do that in a way that really grounds those big concepts. Um, again, something I like about the book, the big concepts of the moral economy and, and political values and, and social contract, you ground it in, in everyday lived experience uh, through, these, through these case studies. And these case studies, I think, really give us a kind of nuanced understanding of how people experience the sharp end of these forces you're talking about, but also the ways in which they act when they do get fed up, sometimes publicly, sometimes in more hidden ways, sometimes online, sometimes offline. Could you maybe give us a couple of examples from these case studies of where you think um, you're, you're getting this, this story of, 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 of how people act and exercise agency in these difficult conditions when on the basis of their, their moral values? Yeah, thanks, John. I mean, I think that, the, you know, to say partly why the stories in the, are so rich is because they were a group of really excellent researchers writing these chapters, you know. Um, these are our scholars with a lot of experience in the field, a lot of experience with doing empirical research, and I think that that surfaces in, in the details in the chapters. So, um, I mean, there are quite a lot of chapters. <laughs> so, you know, there are 10 different stories. Um, I'll touch on, on three and maybe Joe can also touch on some if she wants to as well. So we've got two chapters that actually look at the experiences of the Adivasi, the indigenous people in India. And um, Ranjita Mohanty's chapter in particular looks at the intense resistance to large scale mining by the Adivasi, whose land, which they use for subsistence, subsistence um, and their livelihood, is encroached on by mining companies uh, for their own economic profit. So this chapter looks at two cases of Adivasi protests to large scale mining by multinational mining companies. And the Adivasi have been resisting displacement from their land and their habitat that's been caused by large scale mining for a very long time. So they, they are trying to assert their land rights by, and, and they are definitely a marginalized and poor group. And this assertion is at the center of their protests. And that chapter then unpacks how they have done that. Then we've got a, um, a very interesting chapter on water politics, actually. And this is a chapter that looks at the city of Bulawayo. Now, the city of Bulawayo has had water problems, well, for since it's, since it was established. Um, I mean, partly because it's in a semi-arid climate. And I mean, lots of places have water problems nowadays. But also because there have been rising levels of demand, and these have not been met by adequate supply. So there are many disagreements uh, amongst various stakeholders around ownership and management of water infrastructure. 
And also, interestingly, Bulawayo is a city that is run by the opposition party and not by the dominant national um, party in Zimbabwe. So between 2005 and 2015, there were two waves of protest that occurred that had a profound impact on citizen-state relations at both national and local government levels. And the first wave was supported by local city authorities because they were in the opposition party and they, they were backed by residents. So it was a joint kind of protest and they directed their protest at the ruling government's decision to effectively transfer the management and ownership of, cities, of the city's water resources to a central government agency. And this transfer was meant to improve, in theory, the water provision. Um, however, the residents uh, of Bulawayo and other cities that were run by the opposition, regarded this decision about their common good, as they, as they saw it, their water, as a paternalistic assault on their political auton autonomy. And in the end, these protests were actually successful, and Bulawayo remained the only city in Zimbabwe in control of its own water resources. But then, a few years later, there was a second wave of protests, and these took a different turn. This time, people got angry with the city of Bulawayo's authorities, and because the city had decided to privatize their common good, water, by introducing prepaid water meters. And the city's rationale for these changes in the water management system was supposedly to improve supply and access, but the, the residents of Bulawayo fiercely rejected this intervention. And this time they framed their protests in the language of indignation and the language of need. So um, this chapter is very interesting because it critically engages the shifting political subjectivities of protesters in relation to national and local authorities in Bulawayo. And then um, I actually wrote a chapter on protest and poaching in Cape Town in South Africa. So I've been doing uh, empirical research, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> with a community, uh, a fishing community on the edge of urban Cape Town called Hanburg. And this is a, a really um, interesting community that's steeped both in fishing, but also steeped in protest. Uh, they, they are known for their multiple and often very um, tense and um, sometimes violent protests. So the reason this particular protest I wrote about happened was because in the modern contemporary state, you need a permit to fish. And this is a luxury that many of the traditional fishers in Hamburg don't have because they haven't been able to get a permit from the state. So they're constantly contesting the state and other public authorities demanding their right to fish. And when that doesn't work, when they can't get a permit, they then poach. And this is obviously illegal and they are breaking the law. But there is a long history of values as to the sea being part of their, their livelihood strategy as being part of what is their common good. And so the poaching is not seen by them as something that's illegal. It's seen by something that they're entitled to. So looking at this situation, the chapter traces the formation of these political values and their role in driving protests and then poaching in Hamburg. But what's quite interesting about this particular dynamic as well is that bound up in the protest and in the poaching is actually a very complicated relationship with public authorities. It's not binary. It's not you know, us versus them. It's because they, they know public authorities are expected to provide access to fishing rights. And they understand that there is that role the state must play. So it's not that the state plays the role in providing the access. It's the way in which they provide access that the fishers really um, dislike and find frustrating and alienating. So you can then, you know, the chapter then allows you to reflect on the complexities of the gray zones of governance that, you know, public authorities 
are not always simply state actors or officials sitting far away from where residents live. And then actually they're always representatives in communities as well, because you're gonna have local cooperative leaders who are responsible for putting lists um, together to represent who should be getting permits. And they live in the communities in which the fishers live. Uh, you may have local politicians who are engaging with state departments. So different actors move between different roles. And on, on one day they can be a protester, and the next day they can be in the authority uh, in terms of, of looking at who may get a, a, a permit, for example. So, you know, this then takes you to a conversation about the challenge of the social contract, and, and we can talk about that a bit later. Um, and then the last example I wanted to share is a chapter by Nguenya and Van Leeres, because in their chapter, they've, they've looked at a very different understanding of resistance and protest. And they argue that Western ontologies and epistemologies are actually limiting our understanding of the representation of values formation. So whereas in the previous chapters, you can see the fishers going to the streets and protesting, uh, throwing rocks um, and using quite visible forms of, of protest. In Nguyen and Von Lira's chapters, they talk about the fact that we have to unlearn what we're used to seeing and what we're used to looking for in terms of, of the representation of values formation. And then we need to do this in order to read what they call resistant texts, which are essential for understanding the complexity of the social contract in the global South. And they give examples of what this may look like in, in beading work, for example, that women may wear. Um, yeah, so I don't know uh, if Jo wants to add any of her examples. Jo, I wonder if um, those are great examples and I, they really point to what you say, the complexity of the relationships and, and also the the gray zones, the, the blurred lines between this often binary approach we have of the state and, and, and the citizen, as you say, that these are these these blur in, in everyday life and communities. Joe, as you think about your examples, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit more about the methodologies that you used, because each of these cases takes a, an interesting methodology to capture these voices from below. And I know that you're particularly an expert in using narratives and research to and storytelling as as a, a research tool. So could you perhaps give an example or two, but talk about how you use narrative and storytelling to uncover these lived realities? Yeah, so we, we have a number of chapters in the book and um, that, that deal with narratives and storytelling uh, in different ways. And I think this was one of the innovative things about how this book came together because um, from when we started really uh, working through the sections of the book, um, in, in our workshop in Cape Town, um, we, we had a focus on narratives even then. And I think that that focus also helped us to recognize the importance of, of everyday experiences and think about how to relate those to the, the big questions about democracy and the social contract. So um, we were able to then develop as a, a sort of a cluster of, of chapters together that all use elements of narrative and storytelling in different ways. Um, so um, there, there's some what there's several chapters that, that do this. Um, um, Shailashri Shankar has a chapter which is about um, competing narratives in the legal system in India and um, Adivasi claims for, for land and, and for their rights. Uh, and her chapter is really focusing on how the legal system makes sense of narratives. So 
when um, evidence has to be given, for example, in a court or to um, police, um, there, there's a lot of questions of what counts as evidence, how information is recorded, and what, what therefore constitutes truth in, in the legal system. And any claims about rights have to go through that, that process in order to be, to be given formal recognition if they've been violated. And um, so what, what Shalashri does really, really well in this chapter is she takes us through how these different narratives and different types of stories are constructed within the legal system and how it is difficult for groups such as the Adivasi that she focuses on to have their stories recognized and heard within the legal system. And she looks at examples of how that, how that can happen. Um, we have another chapter uh, by Yusra Price, who is a, a young um, a, a early career scholar in, in South Africa, which looks at online narratives. Um, and she focuses actually on the neighborhood that she lives in in Cape Town and a neighboring one, uh, Rehund, where protests um, by the, in Rehund, which is a, a historically marginalized community, um, were being seen by her more middle-class community and the ways of describing online um, different groups and different types of citizens and what kind of uh, values were associated with that. So her chapter actually looks at how the narratives of who has, who is justified in protesting for what and under what circumstances reflect political values, sometimes quite conservative political values about um, um, based on assumptions of race um, and class that have been very detrimental um, in Cape Town and in lots of places in South Africa and other places in the world as well. Um, so she looks at that, that sort of interplay between things that are happening, protests that's happening in, in, on the street and the way that that protest is being constructed through narratives online. Um, and then um, there's also, I guess, in the chapter that Fiona mentioned about Buluayo, they, they don't use narratives in the same way, but it, it was a case of that chapter was written by someone who, uh, by Meli Dubé, who's a um, PhD student, but also an activist who was involved in the struggle over the right to water in Buluwayo, along with an anthropologist um, from, um, from Germany who is interested in political subjectivities. So while they don't frame it, uh, as being about narratives, they do use a lot of narratives in, in the chapter, but from a more ethnographic standpoint to understand how these different subjectivities within the activist protests uh, were being constructed. Um, and then I guess finally my chapter um, is about the Delft Safety Group, which is um, a group that I worked with over a number of years in a township in, in Cape Town. Um, and it's looking at how a process of multimodal storytelling um, helps the group to articulate their own experiences of violence and insecurity within the township and ultimately to recognize what they have been going through in terms that relate to the sort of justice that they want to see. 
So it helps them, the storytelling process helps them to make sense of their experiences and then to interpolate those experiences into their political significance as a group. Um, so it's perhaps a bit different from, from some of the other uh, chapters in the way that it treats storytelling. Um, but I think that overall what these, these different um, chapters that use narrative and storytelling do is that they give us a different view of, of the process of representative democracy or protest. Um, they, they situate a multi-dimensional understanding of the social contract that emerge, emerges through narratives, that emerges through the way that people relate what has happened to them and the implications of what has happened to them. Um, and these narratives help us see how political values are constructed and how they change. Um, and they bring a focus on the lived experiences of injustice um, alongside the moments of crisis, which, you know, both of those things happen together. Um, so I think that what we were trying to do, hopefully successfully in the book, is to integrate these, these two things into a broader analysis of the relationship between political values and the social contract, um, and how this ultimately informs the prospects for justice in these complex societies. I think it's very successful. And I think you also, in, in taking the narrative approach and the deep case study approach, you really are calling attention to, to the many different ways that citizens may act. And, and through our, Joe, you mentioned our earlier work together on, on citizenship and participation. There's some nice new concepts here where you talk about spectator citizenship online or, or silent citizenship where voices may not emerge publicly, but action is still occurring. And, and in, in, in somewhat hidden resist forms of resistance. And you talk about storytelling, but you also talk about counter storytelling um, as a deliberate political strategy, all of which is, gives us a lot, to, a lot of new material to by which we can think about the ways that citizens exercise their voice and, and, and raise their voices. But in all of this, you talk also, you've, all, you've both mentioned this concept of the social contract. So maybe we can, can just elaborate a little bit on how you're using that. Social contract oftentimes is a, it's a very legalistic idea. And, and you've talked about it more as a normative idea and, and more you talk about it as more as an implicit relationship between citizens and the state. So, so what are you saying here about the social contract? And, and what are you saying when you mean the fractured promises of post-colonial states and how the social contract has become fractured itself? I'll start off by saying using the term fractured was uh, was not easy to to align on. We had multiple debates in our <laughs> workshops as to do we want to use the word broken? Do we want to use the word fractured? Because obviously it's not for, um, it's not uniform across all cases and all contexts. But in the end, the group did decide actually fractured was a good way of capturing what has happened. So let me um, start by answering your question to to reflect on how we and how we use social contract. Well, again, <laughs> there's so many ways, um, you know, and I come from a politics background. So I, I was raised on, uh, you know, Hobbes and Locke and the social contract. Um, and even with that background, it's very difficult to write about actually. So we didn't have one fixed way of approaching it, but obviously we did go back to tracing the idea of a social contract um, and, and even looking at rules. But essentially, arguably, whether you're in ancient Greece or ancient Africa or contemporary society, the governance of any society requires a stated or a constitution or an unstated set of norms and that these guide and structure interactions between the state, 
or between rulers and society. So we started from that premise, you know, a set of norms um, that guide the relationship. And we did take the perspective that a contract um, between state and society does reflect a normative world. And this is based on narratives, which in turn may be translated into codified paradigm, um, into a constitution, for example, or law. So using that framework, um, we were then had cases where we were able to show that the basis for political order and its allied responsibilities and the expectations of the state are created by varied and often competing social groups. So I think it's quite important to, to just note here that um, we don't, in any of the chapters, in any of our, our introduction or any of the framing, ever lump people together as one group of marginalized or one um, displaced, for example. Or we recognize there's a lot of nuance within, within, within whichever group you happen to be researching. Um, so yeah, there's never just one set of meanings attributed to the nomos or to the, to the norms. Uh, or one way in which a social contract is established or interpreted. So it's necessary to think beyond a rigid notion of the equilibrium or the social contract. And this can imply that they're historic or fixed values, um, but it can also imply that these values are changing uh, over time. So our case studies um, also demonstrate when we're thinking about the social contract, obviously, what do we mean by the state? And, and this I spoke about earlier, that, and this, this came through strongly in my chapter, but in many of the chapters, that there is no singular version of the state or one public authority. Uh, in Weish, uh, Laura's, Laura's chapter, Laura Weishbush's chapter, she actually looks at different civil society actors trying to influence BRICS policy. So she's actually looking at um, international relations. And here she talks about different groups that have different names. One, for example, bricks from above that includes state, state officials, the private sector and government affiliated think tanks. So even in, in that context, you can see there's a break in the dichotomy of state and non-state actors. They'll often overlap. So we've shown the political values and public authority aren't fixed um, in a post-colonial context and a social contract implies some, but it does have to imply some form of common political values. It's not completely nebulous. <laughs> um, our cases show that these are based on some key expectations. So where did these key expectations come from? In the four countries we look at, there was each had a new constitution and Zimbabwe's was as recent as 2013. And this constitution encodes a new social contract with each of these an articulation comes of what rights can be demanded from the states. And this does connect to ideas of social justice. So each of the countries we look at to varying degrees in their founding documents, pledge to address racial and caste inequality, social historical discrimination, provide fair access to livelihoods, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is also that benchmark one can turn to. So I hope that helps you understand how we approach social contract. And then if I reflect on what do we mean about it fracturing? So, um, you know, we did agree as a group that these contracts, these social contracts are not broken, that it's not, it's not the end of the road. Um, even in, I must say, you know, South Africa has recently had quite a profound challenge to its social contract. In July, we had, uh, we had riots in many parts of the country. And um, those riots actually reflected the most profound fracturing I've seen in post-apartheid South Africa, where thousands and thousands of people completely abandoned the rule of law. And um, however, it's not broken because they went back, the rule of law was established, it's, it wasn't long lasting, it was temporary and it was short. 
So in the chapters, um, if providing redress for social injustice is a key expectation that citizens have in relation to the social contract, it is clear from our case studies that this is fracturing um, because the, the cases describe many advances made in support of justice. However, there are deep, deep injustices that still persist. So SJ Cooper Knox chapter, for example, shows how one form of social contract was established in South Africa when the incoming ANC government created what she has called a moral economy of citizenship in 1994. And this summoned citizens to adopt a politics of patience. Basically, the constitutional order provided citizens with strong socioeconomic rights, as well as political and civil protections. But these were prefigurative. The values were co-constructed in the anti-apartheid struggle, but they required citizens to wait, to be patient, to take their turn, to think to the future um, for their freedom, for their dignity, for their equality. And then we also have a, um, uh, Vera's chapter, Vera Shatankulo. I can never say that right because my Spanish isn't good. <laughs> but Vera's chapter, she argues that in the 1988 Brazilian constitution, that here there was a formalized a new contract between citizens, citizens and the state. And here the legitimacy of the state was linked to its capacity to assure the development of citizens' capabilities. And her chapter looks particularly in relation to the right to health services. So new political leadership in the form of a right-wing conservative president may undermine this contract, she argues. And, and she predicts that this may lead to a growing social protest. And we have indeed seen that in Brazil. Um, if progressive forms of health provision are eroded. So those are just two snippets, but our case studies across all the chapters raise a series of important issues. First is the extent to which these social contracts in their moments of conception and their future iterations reflect an elite a hegemonic project, or are they actually co-constructed? Are they actually reflecting a developmental agenda? South Africa certainly claims to, but often it doesn't follow through or, or citizens don't feel like they've actually co-constructed the contract under which they live. And then second, we ask in the context of post-colonial states, the temporality of the social contract is really important. And again, SJ Kupernock highlights the importance of this when she shows that the social contract embraces this prefigurative, prefigurative idea of social justice rather than an historically established and embedded social contract. So political struggles that want to preserve what has already existed are fundamentally different from those that hope to realize what is not yet materialized. And in cases where both are perceived to be fractured, the social contract is damaged. And so then third, we look at who do citizens turn to to uphold the social contract in contexts where there are multiple public authorities and um, where there are multiple public authorities, including the states, community representatives, political parties, all of them hold authority to maintain the social contract in order to deliver a form of social justice. Where there are multiple governance actors, where do citizens turn to in their claims for social justice? And so these are some of the complex questions that we don't resolve, but they do point to the importance of um, the social contract. Thanks, Fiona. That's a really, really rich and understanding of, of this, 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 this concept. And on our own work, I'm currently working on a research program on the empowerment and accountability. Um, and I think as we've discussed before, we're finding very parallel themes, particularly of the multiplicity of authorities. Um, there's this notion that there's the citizen and there's the state, 
um, simply isn't true in reality. As you pointed out, there's a diversity of citizens and groups. There's a diversity of, of authorities and they come together in very, very complex ways. I wonder if we could just finish with asking both of you um, a question. You, you've talked about fracture, you've talked about contestation. Um, there's a lot here that one could read um, and be somewhat disillusioned by the, the post-colonial state and its future, but I don't get that sense from, from your book. How, how does it leave you thinking about the future? What, what hope do you see for, for these societies, um, post-colonial societies and states and, and others, others like them? And what hope do you see for these, these, more, these incidents of moral outrage um, helping to lead to change and, and deepen democracy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you'd asked that question um, in when we submitted the book to the publisher in July 2019, you might have gotten a slightly different answer than the one that I, I feel like I have to give now, because it's definitely the case that the experience of COVID-19 and the global pandemic has put a lot of pressure on democratic systems in all of the countries that are in this volume, but not only that, also on the global system such that it is. Um, and I think um, uh, Fiona and I were talking about this when we were preparing for the podcast that, you know, it really has, COVID really has shown us the weakness of a lot of the global norms that we um, have been not, I wouldn't say relying on, but that which haven't been tested in the way that they've been tested in the last the last couple of years. Um, and so I think that in a way, what why does that how does that relate to what we to what's in the book? Um, well, what what it sh has shown us, I think, COVID and the experience of COVID and also it resonates with the much longer trajectories that we're talking about in the book is that ultimately people are not passive. While we may not always understand what is going on in terms of resistance or other um, ways of describing it, you know, participation in democracy, for example, um, what we can see from this book, and I think also from our experience of the pandemic, is that paying attention to people's political values can make a big difference. Um, and working with groups to build those values and build the legitimacy of the, of the public authorities that are responding to those values can revitalize democracy. And there are new ideas about what is just that are constantly being formed and reformed. And I think the experience of the pandemic, again, is a really good example of this. If you think about what happened here in the UK in terms of the lockdowns and the levels of support and legitim legitimacy that those each had, it was in part to do with um, implicit understandings of what was right and what needed to happen to take care of everyone in society and to take care of the health service. Um, so I think that um, although we are we are definitely trying to, to call attention with the book to um, to the risks and the dangers of, um, 
of very divided and, and unequal societies um, and what that means for democracy, we're also equally trying to call attention to the importance of understanding the, what political values mean to people and how that informs different kinds of struggles and what that can mean for new, new and different ways of seeing um, how democracy can happen. So I think it's optimistic overall in the end. <laughs> Fiona, a final word? Um, I mean, I would mostly just like to echo what, what Joe is saying is that, you know, what I found really heartening about the, the research and the studies that we, that we have in the book is that citizens act, they care, and they take their time and they put energy in to, to building institutions, to demanding rights. And so, the, you know, it isn't passive. And I think that democracy is still relatively new in our big history <laughs> as humans, as sapiens. So this is something we have to take time to, to forge. Um, you know, in terms of the impact of COVID, I think definitely has had a significant impact on how citizens are able to form, to meet, to, to resist, to demand. Um, and it surfaced for me the real importance of institutions, of democratic institutions. And um, I, I'm hoping that past behavior is a good indication of future behavior. And that as soon as lockdowns are less onerous, um, that, that those kinds of mobilization that will support building strong institutions uh, will, will kick back into place. I think those are those are wonderful conclusions and, and do bring a sense of hope hope for the future to answer my own question when i read the book there's you know as we know this last decade has seen the large huge rise of protest around the world as a form of of engagement some literature sees that those protests as a breakdown as a failure of democracy as a risk to democratic order um, but i think in the book you don't represent them that way you see them as um, the best hope for renewing democratic institutions, for constantly renegotiating the social contract in the face of the huge challenges that, that it faces, that, that we face. And I think in the way that you've answered these questions and as the chapters also uh, bring to life is concepts like the moral economy and, and the sense of fairness and justice aren't static concepts. They're constantly being renegotiated um, in rapidly changing times. And it's that dynamism of citizen action and renegotiation, which comes across so strongly um, in the book. So I hope for our listeners, the, these snippets will give you some, some idea of, of why I think this book is such a valuable contribution to the literature. Um, many thanks to the editors and the contributors, because Joanna, as you mentioned, you've not only given us really rich case studies, but you've modeled a very collaborative and inclusive style of, of committed scholarship. And, and that, that model also, I think, represents a, a hope of how, how academia and how committed research can, what we call it idea, at IDS, engaged excellence, can also contribute to a more just and democratic world. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk